My name is Dr. Kia Noel Johnson. I am a board certified speech language pathologist, associate professor at University of Houston, proud chair of the National Black Association for Speech Language and Hearing, and I am an ASHA board of directors member as well. And you are listening to Rebuke. Hello everyone, my name is Dr. George Castle and I am a clinical assistant professor at New York University, uh, board certified um, speech language pathologist. And I just want you to know that if you have a communication disorder or feel like you have a problem with communication, there are places you can go. You can go to the website for the American Speech Language and Hearing Association. That is www.asha.org. That's A-S-H-A dot org. And you can follow the uh, site to find a certified speech language pathologist in your state. Again, that's www.asha.org. And you can find a speech language pathologist in your state. I am in New York. So if you need uh, advice or consultation, uh, you can reach me at Dr. George Castle. That is D-R-G-E-O-R-G-E-C-A-S-T-L-E at gmail.com. And you are listening to Rebuke. This is Marcus, the realest man in the Huntsville, and you're now listening to Rebuke. Today, we are discussing a sensitive topic for me, and I believe uh, discussing a sensitive topic for everyone else, and I hope everyone learns something from the show. Um, before I go into my title, I want to talk about the reason why I did this show. Uh, the reason why I did this show um, is because growing up as a child, um, my mom used to tell me that I struggle with uh, speaking as a young child, I mean, as a young one. And I had to go to various uh, classrooms and uh, special appointments in, within school to help me with my speech, speech and my language. A lot of you have been listening to my podcast and one particular person that was listening to my podcast, you know, kind of point out that I was pausing a little bit or struggling with some words, whatever. And that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. To the point that I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do a show about this because I have a lot of, I got family members and I know some individuals that um, struggle with speech impediments so the today of the today's title is my words are not coming out right uh today we have specialists that i've been waiting on for six months (laughs) (laughs) and i'm not lying i've i've been uh trying to reach out to these individuals for six months uh at, at least to try to get a show um and finally, we were here in August. So I'd like to thank Dr. Johnson and Dr. Castle for being on the show today to talk about speech impediments in the Black community. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. And again, I appreciate your persistence. And it was COVID. It was COVID and everything else that just exploded <laughs> that yeah. caused us to be six months. <laughs> For sure, for sure. There's a lot going on now, so we do apologize, but we're happy to be here with you. Okay, appreciate it, sister and brother. All right, I'm on, it's ladies first. So, first question goes to Dr. Johnson. 
what mm -hmm. is the clinical definition of what determines a speech or language impediment? And All right. The second part are are these conditions hereditary? And okay. Dr. Castle can expound on if he has some more, he has some more stuff. All right. I think it's a, a again. Thanks for having us. And um, we are board certified speech language pathologists. I like to hear uh, that. Yes, and we have state licenses in our respective states. And what we do is, so this is the one first place I want to begin is that our Black communities need to be sure that we know that speech language pathologists exist and what we do. Mm. So when you have a child or an adult who has an issue with speech, that could be pronouncing sounds, that could be voice issues. That could be someone has had a stroke that's impacted their ability to say certain sounds. Um, and then you have the language component for individuals who maybe their vocabulary and how they understand language and how they use it separate from learning a language. You know, this is, for example, you have a, an English speaker, but they have an issue understanding English or an issue using English to express their thoughts or needs. So when you have a child or an adult, they could have a speech issue or they can have a language issue or a combination of both. Mm. And I really want our black communities to know that if you have a child or an adult who has an issue in one of those areas or both, a speech language pathologist would be, a board certified speech language pathologist would be the place to go. One factor that we also deal with that a lot of people don't understand is swallowing. So if an issue, a person has an issue with swallowing, swallowing, when you put food in your mouth, chew mm -hmm. it, swallow it, it gets to your stomach, you're using the same um, anatomy that you okay. use for speech. So when you have an issue, if a person has a stroke or they have um, some neurological issue that impacts their ability to swallow, a speech pathologist is also the place to go. But back to your question, thinking about speech impediments as impacting your ability to create sound or actually create sounds that are used in the language that you speak. Stuttering falls under speech, but then you also have the language, ability to use language to express your needs and ability to understand language. One key thing I'll leave you with is that a person with a speech issue does not have a cognitive or intelligence issue. Mm. So when it comes to, for example, for stuttering, if someone stutters, people make the poor assumption that the person has an intelligence issue. So then they start talking to you louder or slower so that you can understand. And it goes, no, it's speech. There's, there's no language issue. Um, some of those speech issues, um, like stuttering, could have a genetic component, although it doesn't cause stuttering. Um, and then there are some other issues under speech and language that have no um, genetic component as, at all. So I'll be quiet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, doc Dr. Castle, you have something to add to it? Um, is it is it hereditary? Because like I, uh, I was talking to y'all earlier, I got several family members that have, they struggle with stuttering. They struggle with, you know, language, whatever. Is this hereditary? So or is, this a, is this a brain defect or what, what is it? The, the thing is this, there are several. So we're in the business of communication sciences and disorders. And so under that large umbrella, there are a lot of possible impairments. There are a lot of possible ways that someone's communication can be impaired or disrupted um, or affected. And so some of those disorders have genetic components, others do not. So let's be clear in sort of disambiguating or just making it really, really clear to everyone that 
there are several different ways that your communication can be uh, can be impaired. And of those ways, some have a genetic component and some we haven't found a genetic component with, right? So that's number one. Um, as Dr. Johnson stated, stuttering has a genetic component. Um, there are other uh, uh, disorders that have uh, fragile X, uh, autism, um, those have a genetic component. Um, there, there, there are several different disorders that have effects on your communication. So whether or not it's component, uh, whether or not it's genetic, really, um, it, it's really going to be specific to which of the communication disorders you have. So we can't sort of lump all the communication disorders under the same thing and say, well, all of them are genetic or all of them are not. It really depends on which specific ones you're talking about. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of the general thing. Okay. All right. Appreciate it, Dr. Castle. Since uh, Dr. Johnson started off, uh, you're going to start off the next question. Um, before I start off the next question, from the National Institute of Health data, nearly one out of 10 or 10% of black children from ages three to 17 have a voice, speech, language, or swallowing disorder that Dr. Johnson stated, compared to only 7.8% of white children and 6.9% of Hispanic children. My question is to you, why are the numbers for black children higher than, than their white counterparts when there's more white people in the United States? Is Like I said, is it genetics? Is it what we eat? Is it chitlins? I mean, is it? I mean, it, it'll be. Is it the environment? I mean, oh. So that that's a, that's a great question that has multiple layers to it. Oh, is this is a sermon. Oh, <laughs> I'm not gonna make one. I'm not gonna make. One. Okay. Um, but I, I think the first question you have to ask is, well, how are these kids assessed? Who's doing the assessment? By what standards are they being assessed? Okay. Who says what's normal, what's typical, and who says what's not, right? So you start there. You start there. So what set of requirements uh, am I requiring you to meet to state whether or not you're typically developing, right? So best practices, right? So someone who knows what they're doing will evaluate you based on largely what's expected of someone that has the same age as you, but also someone that comes from your culture, someone that comes from your language community, someone that comes from your social community. That's who you should be compared to. So for instance, if I go, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Okay. If, if I go to Northern Alabama and I make this test, right? If I make a, a language test, a speech and language test and base all of my expectations on the kids that come from Northern Alabama. So I go to Northern Alabama and I say, you know what? I'm gonna find out what's normal, what's typical. So I'm gonna collect a thousand people from Northern Alabama and or, or, or sometimes it's even less. So I'm going to collect 100 people from Northern Alabama and I'm going to say, oh, these kids in Northern Alabama do X. So I'm expecting everybody to do X, right? If I do that, I am now holding everybody to the community, the standards, the culture, every all of those influences that are specific to Northern Alabama. I'm taking that and applying it to everybody, and I'm erroneously doing that, right? Because what's what's normal and what's typical for you in Northern Alabama may not be typical for me in Brooklyn. The vocabulary, the vocabulary that you might use in Northern Alabama may not be the vocabulary that I use in Brooklyn. So if I make a test and I say, well, you're supposed to know what this is and you're supposed to know what that is, and it's all specific to Northern Alabama, of course the kid from Brooklyn is going to be considered disordered, right? And so we actually have some tests that are used 
that don't really represent African-American children well, right? And so you have words on tests. There's some tests that, 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 that look, I remember looking at one standardized test and there were words like backhole, like gondola, so backhoe, like the, like the, like the like the construction equipment, gondola, oh. like 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 a boat. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said backhoe. Yeah. Yeah, your your mind went somewhere else. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, even I was sitting here like backhoe. Okay. Right. <laughs> but but these are, but these are actual words from an actual standardized test that they use to assess people, all people. And if you don't get these words correct, then you are dinged for it. You are now saying, okay, well, this person's vocabulary isn't high. This person might have a, a, a language problem because they don't understand these specific words, right? So of course a kid from Brooklyn is not going to know some of these terms that are specific to maybe a rural community, mm-hmm. right? Um, you don't have bodega on these tests. I wouldn't know what a bodega is, you know? You don't have, you know, certain things that are specific to the African-American community, right? Um, you don't see tests and you, and, and, and you see sentences like, I'm finna go to the store, right? right? If you ask a kid from Northern Alabama, say, I'm finna go to the store, you're gonna understand what I'm saying. Right, you're gonna understand what I'm saying, but if you ask a, a white kid from from another community that Montana, that's not right, from Montana, that's not familiar with African American vernacular, then they're gonna be looked at as disordered. So again, you have to think about how is a person functioning relative to their community, relative to their environment. Now, if I put you up against people from Northern Alabama and you interpret language differently or you use language differently, now I can begin to say, all right, there's something going on here. He might have a speech delay. He might have a language problem. But I have to compare apples to apples. And so a lot of times that isn't done really well in terms of assessments. And so a lot of the kids that come from um, underrepresented communities, when it comes to these tests, a lot of the kids are being evaluated by standards that really don't reflect the environment they come from. Mm. And so that's part of the that's part of the reason why. That's a big part of the reason why. The other part, and I'll and I'll stop at my sermon here, but Preach Dr. Castle. <laughs> the, The other part about it is um, when we talk about special education, um, which I didn't even, you know, I think, you know, later on we can get into a little bit more, but there are a lot of people that present with behavioral, um, that present with behaviors that people assume are tied in with language and cognition and intelligence and all of that. And so they get misrepresented, they get misdiagnosed, um, and they receive services for, you know, speech and language when in fact there are other things that are going on that sort of obscure their actual abilities. So that's the other part. Okay, thank you, Dr. Castle. Uh, I want to I want to add something to that because I want to take that piece even further when it comes to access. Um, because is that okay, Marcus? But, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, because one of the things I was thinking about is that when it comes to access to services, oh yeah. That tied though with there's a cultural difference when it comes to culture seeking out services. Let me explain. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, in the in the black community, typically, I'm not saying this is across the board, but typically there isn't as much of a stigma associated with communication disorders as there is in white communities. So the average white parent may be less hesitant to tell you that their child has a speech or language impediment. 
Whereas in the black communities, we are okay with saying, oh, my kid has a language issue or my kid is seeing a speech pathologist for articulation or a speech production. So I have even had families who will say, I want to get white families who will say, I want to get my child's services in the summer so that the neighbors don't know or so that their classmates don't know. So when you look at studies like this from NIH, I want to know how did they collect this data? Because you may have African-American families that are like, yeah, put me in a research study or collect my data. It's about speech pathology, you know, okay. Whereas white families may say, I don't know if I want to put my kid in a research study to give data about speech. Does that make sense? And then if you... Very interesting. They'll volunteer for... uh, the coronavirus vaccine but don't I'm scared but go ahead I'm sorry so what so what so what I've noticed is that usually um there for white and white families there's a stigma with communication disorders versus psychological things there's no issue with saying my kid has autism or my kids on the spectrum things like that in black communities it's usually the reverse we're not ones to say yeah there's a psychological issue with my kid um mm. you know we say they're having a bad day go sleep it off um so that difference usually you see an imbalance when it comes to um, uh, voicing that your child has a speech issue. But then on top of that, um, Black communities, when it comes to access to a speech pathologist or access to to an audiologist, there's differences there. You know, we're less likely to be able to do private pay or self-pay. So we're going to look for other options that may be reported in these studies. And then on the flip side with the Hispanic children, a lot of times that um, that Dr. Castle alluded to, those kids may fall through the cracks because they may chalk up their speech or language issues to bilingual language learning. Mm. So because they're learning English is not a speech impediment or a language impairment, they're just learning a second language and that's the issue. It could be that some of those bilingual kids actually do have a speech or language issue. But because we are not um, always effective in how we assess those kids, they can be misdiagnosed as being an English language learner when maybe they actually have a speech impediment or a language impediment. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay, I learned something today. And and, and not to complicate this further, but it's <laughs> more complicated. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we're, we're talking about black, white, largely, but really it breaks down more into, for my experience, a class issue. A class in terms of the amount of resources, the neighborhoods you come from, so on and so forth. So, for instance, an African American person that is middle class, upper middle class, is more likely to have access to, or even know that there's a speech pathologist, or even know that there are services available, and might even advocate for the services to get the child into a more specialized school yep. with, you know, a better teacher to student ratio. Um, whereas uh, somebody coming from a lower middle class, uh, working class environment might not even know that these resources exist. Um, and so that, that's part of the problem. The other thing is we have to be careful not to sort of lump everyone in a race together because um, there are different cultural beliefs also that, that play into this in yeah. terms of the stigma of receiving therapy of any kind yeah um and what those implications are socially um and so and that varies in the black community right so we live in america um and we're speaking largely about black americans but there's another set of beliefs um in the caribbean community for instance um the, the caribbean community or people from african countries that also approach this in a different way And because I live in New York, where it's a true melting pot, I see people that that vary widely, that are Black, that vary in terms of their beliefs and their attitude towards therapy. So I think a big part of this data um, is who are you really looking at and and what are their beliefs? Um, Because this varies, it it really, really varies widely across uh, not only race, but class. Okay. 
funny, right. it's funny you mentioned that like we uh went to belize and did a study abroad trip in belize and ran into a black person but from belize and she said for speech impediments the way that they cure it and you can't see by hands but for your listeners i'm using quotation marks is they use the calabash fruit from the calabash tree and they let the fruit dry and make a tea out of it and anyone with a speech impediment she said you're cured by drinking the tea never once did she mention therapy never once did she mention a speech pathologist and culturally that is their belief that it cures a speech impediment yeah I see boy, your face. Boy, <laughs> boy this this, this is becoming school. This is more than more school than interview. Similar stories from from other parts of the world too. Yeah, but but our but our job is not to discount that. You know, that's culture. You know, I respect that. But what I would do is then tell the parent, you know, let's tackle this with a plan. Yeah, drink the tea. That's cool. Let's add therapy to it. Got you. Got you. Right. Very important. Dr. Johnson, after I've been doing my research Uh-oh. for six months, I'm just yes. playing. <laughs> <laughs> just my playing. apologies. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I found out there's, I, I found out the top 10 speech and language disorders. Which ones affect the people of color the most? Okay. There's ten. I don't. I don't need a summary of all ten. It'll be tears of two hours. Yeah. No. 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 But uh, uh, which ones, based on your experience, you you feel that people of color, African Americans, Africans, Cari- people of Caribbean, uh, get, you know, are affected the most. Okay. So because this is out of speech and not language. If it were speech and language, then I would say that there are some expressive language issues when it comes to grammatical things that would probably impact black people the most. But I know I'm biased, but I'm gonna say stuttering. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason why is for a number of reasons. Um, One, again, when people stutter, people who don't know about stuttering make the poor assumption that it is um, related to their intelligence, cognitive abilities, um, language, and most of the time that's not the case. Um, And so for a Black person who then starts to speak and stutter, they may be discounted in their ability before the person even gets to know who they are or what they can do. Um, And then with everything going on right now with the Black Lives Matter movement um, and full disclosure and saying that this is not the, the, you know, George Floyd was not the first person that has, you know, been murdered by, you know, racial injustices. This is a long time ongoing issue and I'm glad that we're actually addressing it. But if you have a black male who stutters um, think about how in um, in society we associate stuttering with deception or nervousness. You've done something wrong. You're trying to hide something. I fear for the black male who stutters and gets pulled over, mm. or gets um, or gets you know questioned by the police. Um, what would that look like, and how could that interaction go bad? simply because they stutter. And so looking at the list of speech, um, you know, things that are associated with neurological things, people understand, oh, they had a stroke. They're seeing a neurologist. They're seeing a doctor. But when it comes to stuttering, I fear for that black male who gets pulled over or that black person who stutters that gets discounted from, you know, an interview or a job opportunity because they're black and they stutter. So that's my biased opinion. Yeah, man, I'm with you with that one because, you know, I feel that I've been stereotyped with that. You know, like I said, I don't stutter like most people, you know, but I think everybody stutters, but this this levels to this like Meek Mills. Yeah, exactly. But, and, but some people will look at you, eh, is he? Eh? And then when they get to know you, like, oh, man, you smart as hell. There, what you think? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. you thought? No, I There's struggle that. with a couple words. That's all. 
there's an article where there's a um a black person who was in at the airport and got grilled by TSA because they were stuttering and TSA assumed that they were being deceptive or trying to hide something and they end up on the side in the back room being drilled because they stutter. Um, I won't say who, but there's another person, successful person who stutters that talked about when they were in their home state, which would be similar to Alabama and getting pulled over on a Friday night and stuttering, what that interaction looks like. And we even have created, I didn't create, Stuttering Foundation has created cards I think motivated from the person who was grilled by TSA that they put in their wallet to say, I'm a person who stutters, here are my behaviors, here, so that when you pull out your driver's license, you have this card with it. Wow, y'all have a card for stutterers, you know, to, to keep them alive? Crazy, isn't it? Wow. Crazy. Wow. Hey, man. Hey, come on, Dr. Castle. <laughs> what based on your experience you know what speech language swallowing impediments that african-americans uh uh, uh, struggle the most with man i think um largely i haven't seen disparities across racial lines to say well this is something that's specific to um African-Americans. I haven't really seen that too much. What I have seen, uh, like I alluded to before, was misdiagnosis. So they might say somebody has a speech um, a speech disorder uh, when really they just are different. They just communicate differently than what is expected by the person evaluating them. Um, and so they may say, okay, well, he, you know, doesn't do these things that 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 we expect uh, based on, again, going back to, well, who are you comparing him to, right? Who, who's making the rules? Who, who are you expecting him to be like? So, but again, so I can't stress it enough. When people are um, unfairly compared or unfairly assessed, or sometimes it's not even about fairness because there are a lot of evaluators that believe that they're doing the right thing. There are a lot of evaluators that are doing what, what was taught to them in graduate school. And so they are they are perpetuating these culturally uh, biased assessments, linguistically biased assessments without even knowing it. Mm. Without even knowing it because it's a standardized test um, and you know, so-and-so expert, doctor so-and-so, says that children should do this and this and this by this and this age, and you African-American boy or you African-American girl are not doing it, so therefore, I'm going to hit you with this label. So, you know, I obviously, I have a PhD as well, but I am, I'm a human. I make mistakes. I have bad judgment sometimes. Right. And so it's important not to just depend on one authority figure or one test, but a battery of assessments. Right. So you want a a variety of tests to lead in the same direction. You want a a variety of sources, not just a standardized test, but you want, you know, uh, language samples that are natural. So go into the child's uh, home, see how they interact with their peers their parents, their, you know, friends, and look to see how they operate in that environment as opposed to just taking the scores from a standardized test and saying, okay, this person has an impairment or this person has a delay. So I think some of what we're seeing is evaluators that are just not properly trained, evaluators that just might not have enough uh, savvy or know-how to really truly assess somebody's abilities Uh, given their culture, given their background, given their influences. And so it really speaks to the importance of um, evaluators to really understand somebody's environment and really understand somebody's culture before they go into an assessment. And even during and after the assessment, 
they need to understand how context plays into everything. When they do an assessment, they need to ask the parent, is this typical? How about the other siblings? Do they communicate like this? How about your family? Do you communicate your husband, your wife, your baby's father, your baby's mother? Like, is this normal for the community? If the answer is yes, this is what everybody does, then that kid does not have an impairment. Okay. Right, right. And so, that, and so that's really, really important to understand. So if you're a speech pathologist going into one of these environments, you have to do your homework beforehand. And, 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 and I'll say this, the reason I think a lot of the questions Obviously, we're, we're focusing on African Americans here, but it, it, it's it's important because our profession, speech language pathology, is approximately ninety three percent white. Mm. So just, just just think about that, right? I, I should just stop right there. Just think about that, mm, right? Drop, so if you drop have, the mic. Mm. Drop the mic. So if you have nine more than nine out of ten speech pathologists, the people that are going to come in there and evaluate you, if more than nine out of 10 are white, now I'm not saying that they're not knowledgeable about culture and all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that a lot of people are coming from presumably a perspective that isn't the African-American experience. Some of them do, let me be clear, some of them do understand the african-american experience some of them live in you know african-american communities um they you know speak african-american vernacular all of those things but a lot of them don't so they don't understand and so when they come in and they do their assessment they go in one two three or they, they, they go in for an hour they come out and they say oh yeah i i don't think this kid really has you know these skills they don't necessarily know they're not necessarily well prepared and I'm not saying this is all of them but I'm saying this happens sometimes that's what leads to the numbers that we see and the statistics that we see um, it, part of it is because our evaluators don't always understand the cultures that they're evaluating alright Dr. Castle uh, due to the, the, the gems y'all have dropped so far I skipped the question so, uh-oh, uh-oh. so, uh, uh, so, for the sake of time, I'm gonna go to the next one. Uh, I don't know what happened here. Okay, now I'm back. Uh, study shows that boys are diagnosed with speech and language uh, issues more than women. So, I believe I, I'm gonna go with you, Doctor Castle, on this one. Which one of those, although boys are diagnosed most more than women, but which one, the black woman or the black man struggles the most? And which one is more likely to get treatment, the black boy or the black girl? So unfortunately, and I tell my classes all the time, um, unfortunately, in just about every disorder that I could think about, boys are affected more than uh, than girls, or males are affected more than females. I do not know why that is, but it is factual. Um, the other part of it is that in terms of speech and language, and in terms of like special education, a big part of it is boys are usually identified more than girls because they're more likely to show overt signs or let's say behavioral problems where um, somebody is, so let's, let's, let's give you a, a scenario. So let's say I'm a boy in a class, I have a language problem. I'm not really understanding um, what's going on around me. Um, I don't want you to feel like I'm stupid. I want you to like me. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna act out in class. I'm gonna be the class clown. I'm gonna be the, the bully. I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to gain the respect of my classmates. Uh, and many times that becomes doing something that's disruptive. And so the teacher is gonna zero in on me and say, George, something's going on with George. Let's get him evaluated. And I'm gonna be in, in special ed, right? Um, and that's how they're gonna, you know, whether I have a language problem or not, that's what draws attention to me. 
And we see that more with boys, whereas girls tend to go under the radar more because typically they don't act out or they don't show the behaviors that get them noticed as much as boys do. Which is weird to me because women like to talk. So you would think they would pick up women up faster, like, boom, she got a problem. But you're saying you pick up the, the guys because they act out. It's so the behavior part. Oh, it's the behavior, the behavior part. part. Okay. The behavior part is what draws the attention. Now, the girls may talk a lot in class and that kind of thing, but it doesn't it doesn't draw the attention like the, 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 the dude that's trying to fight everybody or the dude that, you know, is the class clown that's trying to make everybody laugh. That's, that's bringing all the heat on me as a boy and I'm more likely to get evaluated and all of these other things, whereas they might say Kia is in the class. Oh, Kia, she just talks a lot. She needs to stop talking about AKA. She just, you know, <laughs> on, and on and on, you know, but that's Kia. She's just AKA, you know how they so, Yeah, you know, they thanks, George. Thanks, George. <laughs> <laughs> they might do that, but whereas, you know, I, I get called out. Okay. And, and two, the one thing, especially with school-age kids, a lot of times, the speech or language issue has to be so noticeable that you would actually pick up on it in a classroom setting. Most teachers, hear me out, most teachers don't always have a long enough one-on-one conversation without other kids around to pick up on speech and language issues. So they usually have to be really noticeable and that teacher is usually the, the in some cases, the first person to notice that there's a speech or language issue. So seeing that kid who has a behavior issue, that's going to be noticeable. Hey, something's going on with that kid. Let me zero in on that kid. Whereas you could have another kid who doesn't have the behavior. Maybe they don't talk a lot in class. Maybe they the teacher hasn't had that one-on-one conversation. That kid could have a language issue, but if the teacher hasn't picked up on it, they may not get notice um but one thing i'll say and this goes back to something dr castle said honestly the kid who's going to get services is the kid who has the parent who is going to strongly advocate for the service period um i've actually seen a case where a second grade black child who had a mild cognitive delay no, I'm sorry, had a, it was more than mild. It was no, you, talking to her, you can notice. But she didn't get the level of services that I thought she should get because her parents never came to the meeting, to the IEP meetings. Whereas this other kid, white child who had just a reading issue, not just a reading issue, but a reading issue, their parent was there pushing, fussing, calling this person, threatening to call the school board and all of this, that kid got pulled out reading specialists all the time because their parent was there. So Mm. for your listeners, the parent who is in their face, pushing for it, making phone calls, demanding that their child get what they need, that's the kid who's going to get services. It's unfortunate. Just to jump in, I think what, what, what Dr. Johnson is saying is really, really important and really, really true. Um, I spent you know, a number of years in the school systems and I know this to be true. It, 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 a lot of times it comes down to parent knowledge, parent advocacy. The parent that knows and understands and is willing to advocate for their child, they get the services. The parent who doesn't understand, the parent who is embarrassed, the parent who is afraid to, or the parent who's just too busy, right? That's, that, that, that works a lot, right? A lot of us come from single parent households and, you know, our single parent is busy working. We don't have time to come to that meeting. Right. Right. And so that kid doesn't get someone who understands what's going on and is going to advocate um, whereas, you know, the, the, the kid that comes from a two-parent household or the kid that comes from a family that knows what a speech pathologist is or, you know, what they do and what kind of services, and they get it because the parents understand how important it is. So, you know, it speaks to the importance of parents really knowing 
what their child has access to, is entitled to, and how speech and language pathologists can help them. You have to know the system. And unfortunately, a lot of our parents just don't understand the system. Yeah, yeah. Especially like even when it comes to if your insurance requires a referral, then sometimes that pediatrician can be the gatekeeper to whether or not that child gets a referral to a speech pathologist. So if the physician says, uh, they'll, they'll grow out of it, that's not a big issue. That parent could still demand, I hear you, but I want to get an evaluation just to be sure. Yeah, I don't think they need it. Yeah, I hear you, but I want my child to be evaluated. And same thing with the schools, knowing the system, a parent can request that their child be evaluated. If the parent can't come to the meeting, that school has to do some due diligence to come up with some mechanism for that parent to be represented in the meeting. I've done I've done meetings by phone. Uh, you know, I, I've had to call a parent a long time ago, collect, because the parent didn't have the resources. You know, we have to be willing to advocate for those kids and be flexible so that that parent can have the voice that they want to have. And parents can't shy away from, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have the education level. I don't know the system. I'd ask for an advocate, ask for someone to break it down and demand to be clear on and understand what's supposed to happen so that your kid can get what they need. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. And I think it's, it's, it'll be, it'll be shameful if I didn't ask Dr. Johnson this question, the next one. Um, I watched Steve Harvey and it was an episode. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen it? Yes. Have you seen it? I'm so glad you saw it. I saw the question. I was like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Yes. Mm -hmm. This beautiful black woman, Mm -hmm. but she had a extreme stuttering problem. Um, I got a cousin that's worse than her though, but mm-hmm. she's trying to explain herself and she feels that the stuttering problem prevents her from getting men, which uh, you look at this woman, and, yeah, I, I, I get over it. <laughs> uh, just, I can get over it. <laughs> I can get over it real quick. <laughs> so, but she's pouring her heart out to Steve Harvey and you know but Steve Harvey is like these speech pathologists don't know what the hell they're talking about I can fix you in a, in a, in a day or two hours I think he I think he said hours he's like I can fix you in a couple of hours and I'm like Steve Harvey yeah. it's already enough these people think you are a relationship specialist yeah yeah yeah. Now are you a speech specialist too? <laughs> so, Doctor Johnson, please take it away. Yeah. What, so, the, is Steve Harvey telling the truth here? You can. Uh, so, so I will give a disclaimer that um, I think Steve Harvey is an awesome comedian. I think he's an awesome actor. We watch him for Family Feud all the time. I've seen his movies. I even have a picture with him when we, um, oh, man. during an AK, <laughs> AK Boulay, we were happening, the bus was pulling out and he was outside and he came on the bus, spoke to the AKs. So I, I have a true, I, I love Steve Harvey. I think he's oh, awesome. Boy. But he should stay um, in it's his lane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't try to do what he does. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't try to do what I do. Um, and and honestly, that video clip created a huge uproar within the stuttering community. To really? the point that some associations or groups within stuttering actually wrote him. I even tweeted him, um, communicated to him that the message he sent was inappropriate and outside of his lane. It was outside of his scope of practice. And because people look to him and he has that platform, he has a responsibility to his viewers, to his followers, to give accurate information. And that was inaccurate information. Now I will add though to that, what he said, there is some truth to it. And hear me out, um, the average speech pathologist does not have 
um, does not always have a level of experience to be adequate in treat assessing and treating stuttering. Okay. The way I equate it is that if you had a cold or the flu, going to your family doctor is fine. But if you needed brain surgery or something that's more specialized, your family doctor, although they are certified and licensed, they may not be the best person to do your brain surgery. So in speech pathology, right? So you wouldn't want your doctor. Yeah, exactly. So in speech pathology, there are some areas that, in my opinion, would require a little more expertise, stuttering, um, swallowing, voice, autism, Autism. you, you going to your average speech pathologist may not be the best solution. You may want to find a speech language pathologist who specializes in those areas. So when you have speech pathologists who are not experienced in those specialized areas, but yet they go ahead and treat someone for stuttering, if that person has a negative experience, maybe they they don't get the support that they need. Um, they don't feel like they got any anything was addressed. That person walks away with a negative viewpoint on what speech language pathologists can do about stuttering. And I think Steve Harvey probably had one of those negative experiences or experiences that was not as productive as he would have wanted it to address his stuttering. Mm. And if he had, he probably would not have said what he said. So for your listeners, I want them to know that if your kid has something outside of the norm of a language or speech sound production, they need to make sure they're going to a speech language pathologist who can say, I have additional education, additional training, additional experience in stuttering so I can work with your kid versus the speech pathologist who says I'm certified and I took a class in fluency. So um, come see me. Because I was yeah. about to ask you what, you, what do you mean by experience? Because I think Steve Harvey was trying to portray that how you gonna hell you gonna tell me about stuttering when you don't stutter? Kind of, kind of, like, you get know what I'm saying? So, yes. is that for for the, for the record? Would both did both of you have any struggle with speaking, or y'all? This was just a, a calling. <laughs> so I'll say for me, I do not stutter. Full disclaimer: I do not stutter. Although because of my experience, and this is um, someone in stuttering told me this, I am considered a part of the stuttering community. Okay. Because when I I made the choice, um, I, I love stuttering. It's one of those areas that people shy away from. People think it's challenging. I like a challenge. I want to do something that other speech pathologists don't want to do. And for me, every person who stutters is different. And I want that person who stutters whether they're fluent or not, whether they stutter, whether they're caught on a word or not caught on a word, I want them to be able to say what they want to say when they want to say it. Okay. So I do not stutter, but I made the choice to specialize or focus only in stuttering. So although I don't stutter, I have seen at some point, even six days a week, assessing and treating kids and adults for stuttering. Okay. So... Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, Doctor yeah, Castle, yeah. you have a do you have a speech impediment, or you grew up with one, or no? So I do not have a speech impediment. Um, I do not stutter, but I also want to make the point that you do not necessarily have to physically experience uh, a disorder or an impairment to have an understanding and an expertise mm-hmm. in that disorder or you know impairment. I think that's really important. Though I cannot speak to the personal experience of someone who stutters, um, you know, there are people who, like Dr. Johnson, make it their career, their life's work to understand all of the factors that go into stuttering, all of the factors that go into speaking fluently. And so, you know, she spent countless years, years, don't tell my age. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
researching and, and, and meeting people, not only necessarily in a laboratory, but like hands-on meeting people who stutter so that she can have now this knowledge of how to help people who stutter. So she doesn't necessarily have to be someone who stutters to understand stuttering. Um, so, uh, so similarly, I do not, you know, have a language impairment. Um, and in full disclosure, I, I do not personally treat people who stutter. However, I have a son who stutters. So from a parental standpoint, I understand what it's like to be a parent of someone who stutters. I also believe that in part of addressing, and I think we sometimes forget about parents, but parents play a lot into this whole paradigm, in addressing people who stutter or people who have language impairments, speech impairments, you also need to work with their parents. How are the parents supported? What do the parents know? What do the parents understand to be typical? What do the parents expect of the child? What what pressures might the parents be putting on the child? How does that interaction contribute to the disorder, right? So we need to understand how the parent um, is responding, how the environment plays into everything, but you don't necessarily have to physically experience it to have a knowledge of it. Exactly. Gotcha. Uh, Dr. Castle, please explain to everybody what is N-B-A-S-L-H and its overall purpose. So this the is... The alphabet soup. <laughs> the alphabet soup. So the alphabet soup is the National Black Association for Speech, Language, and Hearing. And so Dr. Johnson and myself, and I'll say it again because I said it a little uh, fast, uh, the National Black association for speech language and hearing um so like i alluded to before our profession which is speech language pathologists audiologists for those of you that don't know audiologists the people that specialize in hearing and balance disorders um so speech language pathologists audiologists hearing scientists speech scientists are represented by an organization or an association called American Speech Language um, Hearing Association. So ASHA, right? So there's an overall body that represents speech language pathologists and audiologists um, that is largely um, made up of individuals who are Caucasian. And so in 1978, a group of uh, African-Americans decided that Although the larger association uh, was doing was was doing research and and, and treatment um, that included African Americans, we felt like there needed to be additional emphasis on the support of not only uh, clinicians that were black but also um, clients that were black. And so um, we felt like there needed to be additional representation, additional uh, research, a a place for African-Americans to go where they felt uh, more included. They felt like they belonged to a community, a place where we can network, a place where we can speak to issues that affect only us, um, a place where we can grow, a place where we can support each other. And so Mbazla was born because of that, because of that need, because we were so few in, you know, in, 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 in a group that was so large. And so that's what we are, that's who, who we are. Um, and we're here to speak to uh, not only black people, but people who work with black people, people who support black people. So you don't necessarily have to be black in order to be associated with Mbasla, right? At some point, if you're a speech pathologist, if you're a provider, at some point, you're going to interact with someone who's black, right? And so it's important to to understand the issues that black people have, understand the environment, the culture, the variety of cultures that affects black people, 
And Mbazla is the place to gain that understanding, to gain that research, to, 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 to gain that, that fellowship. So it's for all people who, who, who work with black people, or if you're black yourself and you want the resources in the network. One thing missing is an organ. But, go ahead. <laughs> but you, you're not a man of the cloth, are you, Dr. Cal? Well, I, well, I, I, you know, I, I do believe in a higher power, and um, you know, um, I, I don't necessarily because you had somebody in the background like go, go, Reverend. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, um, no, but you know, it's it's you know, it, 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 and to some people, in Basla is spiritual. Yes, you mm. know, to some people, I, I mean. Really, I, I go to the Basla conference every year, and sometimes people come away saying, "Oh my God, I did not know that this existed. I did not know that I could feel so comfortable with my own people. I can feel so supported. I can feel like somebody really cares about my success. Please keep doing what you're doing, right?" So for some people, it is spiritual. For some people, they, you know, they walking with an organ. They, they. I mean, this is real to them. You know, uh, and it's important. It's important. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. I love it. I love it. I love it. This is the last question. So I'm going to start with Dr. Johnson. What advice you would like to give the black community on helping their loved ones to overcome the speech and language struggles? Um, the things that I were advice I would want to leave is that it's important for us to embrace the fact that we have loved ones who have speech and language impediments and not hide or shy away from it because there is support within speech language pathologists to get things addressed. Whether it means that they address it in a way to get the speech or language impediment to be resolved or disorder to resolve or support in helping that loved one deal with the speech and language impairment. Quality of life is important. So I want our community to know that there are resources to address speech and language impairments and we're called speech language pathologists. The other thing I want them to know is when they're seeking out an SLP, that's what we call ourselves, SLP, speech language pathologists, making sure the person doesn't have to be black but the person has to have some experience with black culture, with black dialect, um, so that they can do what Dr. Castle was talking about, being able to identify, is this a, a communication difference or is this a communication disorder? So asking those questions, one, are you board certified? Are you state licensed? And tell me about your experience working with black individuals and not to be afraid to ask that question. Mm. So. All right, all right. <laughs> Dr. Castle, you uh, for the benediction. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I think everything, everything Dr. Johnson just said is really, really important. Um, I think it's important for parents to understand that there shouldn't be a stigma, not necessarily even just parents, but people in general, don't be afraid to get services. There is no embarrassment in getting services. Um, and, 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 and a lot of what we do in life um, affects, uh, one hand affects the other hand. And so what I mean by that is, if you have speech and language issues, we didn't even talk about this, but that also may have a connection to your literacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't even get to that. To, to, to read and understand, um, you know, and so you may think, and I say this to say, you may think, oh, it's just a little, you know, a little language problem. It's really, you know, I can get over it. And you may not understand how that affects all the other areas of your life. You may not understand how that affects someone in school, how that affects somebody's ability to learn. Um, And and so it shouldn't be taken lightly because there are are, are large-scale implications with language, uh, or there may be large-scale implications with language problems. So don't be afraid to seek out therapy. 
we should remove the stigma of therapy, especially within our community. Um, we should always feel like no matter what education level you have or income level you have, that you are entitled to services, right? Don't feel like, oh, that's just what the white people do. Or that's just what the rich people do, right? Don't feel embarrassed. Well, I don't know all them fancy words, so I can't really express myself. I'm not going to really talk to the teacher because I don't know all that, you know, all that fancy terminology. A lot of our, a lot, a lot of our people feel intimidated. We feel intimidated because we don't know all that fancy school talk. We can't use the big words. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You deserve care just like everyone else. You deserve services just like everyone else. And you should advocate for yourself. You have that right. Don't be afraid. That's what I want to tell people. Well, Thank you, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Castle for coming on the show. Um, I'll leave out with a closing remarks. Like I said earlier in the show, I was I was struggling with speech and language as well as a young kid child. And my mom told me that she cussed out the principal because the principal told my mom and my dad that I would not have a, a vocabulary over 50,000 words and I would not excel in life. Um, I'm here today with a podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, um, like the doctor said, if your children is struggling, don't be embarrassed to get seek help. Um, my I got my little niece. She's she's precious. She's seeking help. Um, is we got to break the stigma about a lot of things in the black community, especially this because. I felt that I, I need to do this because people were somebody brought up brought it up listening to my podcast and I'm not afraid to talk about my testimonies because I'm used to speaking in front of people mm-hmm. but you can overcome if I can overcome it and have a podcast that's been listening to listen over 14 countries wow you can you can get over it too yeah right so Dr. Dr. Castle and Dr. Johnson, I thank you for coming on the show and, and providing your knowledge and expertise in this in this particular arena. And before I go, I always tell my uh, viewers that knowledge is power, economic freedom is salvation, but if you put the two together, you can build a great nation. Thank you for listening to Rebuke, and we out.